Welcome, you're listening to a Serif Podcast, a go-to resource for investors, entrepreneurs, family officers and fund managers looking to learn about exciting investment opportunities around the world. Oh, welcome back, everybody. We're going to begin our second podcast. We welcome again Jason Best and uh, Woody Neese from Crowdfund Capital Advisors. Of course, my partner, Chris Tell, and this is Mark Wallace. How are you guys doing this morning? Doing great, Wonderful. thanks. Great, great. Well, thanks for joining us again. I appreciate it. Um, the last conversation, we went over a bit about your backgrounds and your involvement in, in the Jobs Act. Um, and we finished up, uh, talked a little bit about the grassroots efforts, talked a little bit about the kinds of uh, projects that you're working on at Crowdfund Capital Advisors, and uh, left it with a few things that investors need to think about when considering crowdfund investing. I would say we're going to go in a bit of a different direction. We're going to say... Uh, ask you guys about some of the countries that you've worked with, because you've worked with um, uh, over well over a dozen or two dozen countries now, if I'm not mistaken, on their crowdfunding initiatives and legislation. So what we want to find out today is, you know, what countries are leading the charge, um, what it, and, and really talk a little bit more as well later on about what this means to the existing um, broker-dealer and investment banking business models, because those are definitely going to be disrupted um, uh, with the advent of crowdfunding and as this industry matures. And I, I really kind of want to get your opinions on where you think these guys need to pivot in order to sort of, um, you know, maintain their 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 place in, in the capital markets, or if if they should just be sort of like the dinosaurs or the dodo, um, you know, uh, rolled over, <laughs> which is which is I know what a lot of a lot of investors feel, especially small investors feel taken advantage of. So I'm going to go ahead and pass over to my partner Chris again to go through the questions and um, join you guys later on in the discussion. One of the to follow up on what Mark just mentioned there, one of the um, uh, the things that I think is 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 important here, and this was alluded to in um, uh, in a speech made by one of our advisors, Jeff Bone, at, in Aspen, and he talked about an industry. It's very difficult to change an industry from the top down, um, where it requires a change. You basically always have to build it from the ground up. You have to destroy it and build it from the ground up. And um, one of the things when I, when I look at crowd finance, equity crowdfunding, is that this is an industry which is essentially built, being built from the ground up. And when I look at the, uh, the, the, the impact that this has on broker dealers and investment bankers, um, who incidentally typically top the list of, um, of lobbyists, in Washington, I have to think that they they really did not understand what was being signed into law when it was signed into law because this is incredibly disruptive to their to their bread and butter. I wonder if you guys could just talk a little bit about that. Jason? Well I think the um, one of the things that we've uh, we recognized during the, the law change process uh, in DC is we were largely ignored by major financial institutions. I think first they thought that it wouldn't happen. <laughs> I mean, they, they probably thought that this this was not uh, not real money. And I think that you know you sort of have to have billions and trillions of dollars before you know those large organizations begin to take notice of something. And at that point, most people just looked at at crowdfunding or, or crowd finance for equity and debt. As something that was, you know, for small businesses, and it was, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars or a few million dollars at a, at a, at a time, and so it wasn't, you know, quote unquote, real money to them. I think that I, I remember that talk in Aspen, and and just this conversation of, um, you know, how do we 
uh, make changes and in, in how do industries change. It, it, it's always from an outsider uh, because the incumbents are too big and too entrenched in the way the world works today to see that, how, that there could be a different way or could be a new way. And so I, I think that most financial institutions still are, are not really paying attention to this. I think that they're beginning to take, pay attention to the, in the peer-to-peer -peer lending space, so in the, in the debt side of, of, of crowdfunding. But I don't think that, that uh, they, they're, they're extending that. Uh, they're looking at that because they like, they like the returns they can get from putting money to work in that space. But I'm not sure they, they yet see what will happen in the small business lending and, 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 and equity side of the business. This wasn't meant to be so much uh, disruption as uh, innovation. So to hear people talk about the disruption that this is turning into is fascinating for us. And we do see how disruptive this is going to be. But in reality, we were filled it, filling a void that existed in the markets that exists globally. The reality is the small businesses globally create the majority of jobs that are out there. But the majority of the capital that is in the public markets or in the capital markets out there goes to public companies. And it doesn't make sense that if the people that create the jobs don't have access to the capital, we're never going to you know, stimulate economies globally until we address this funding void that exists for startups and small businesses. So there's a power shift. There's, um, there's an enlightenment. Uh, we believe that this is going to be part of the capital stack and that the players are going to line up behind this. I think we're seeing validation already taking place in industry where, for instance, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later on, you've got venture capitalists that are telling companies now, you know, I think I want to invest in you, but I want you to go out and crowdfund the first 100000 so I can see that you can do what you say you can do. Yep, we're seeing that in, in our work. It's um, it, it's happening more and more. Yeah, I mean, you know, two years ago, three years ago, the the general consensus among a lot of uh, angel investors or VCs was that this was uh, you know not real, and that this was something that they would never want to invest in a company that crowdfunded. That that attitude has completely changed, um, and that's true in the UK, and that's true in the US now as well. Uh, that it's just you know. Show some validation, get some traction, demonstrate some early success, uh, and you're going to lower the risk uh, for for follow-on investors. I think what we've seen, if you look at the countries that are leading the charge, you've got the U.S., you've got the U.K., you've got Australia. They each come with different uh, learnings. In uh, Australia, it's essentially crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding, has been around the longest with the longest with the Australian small scale offering board. They sort of pioneered the idea of using the technology and the crowd in order to fund businesses. The UK then took that and then helped really expand upon that and sort of bring a lot of attention to the, the ability for this to have a disruptive potential. And it was the US with the donation and perk side of it that said, you know what, people are willing to part with their money to help other people with good ideas. Uh, and that validation from these three different parts of the world are letting us see as a global society the true potential that this can have. What I find fascinating about that, those comments that you just made there is that because we're dealing with something which is essentially technology-based, the, the interchange of information between uh, these countries um, is, 
is much more fluid, I think, than it would otherwise be. So, you know, when when one country, for example, Australia, tries something, um, the the players that happen to be sitting in Malaysia or United Kingdom or uh, United States get to see what their process looks like and you know, get to see the results. And so, um, that information is is critical to any business. And if you if you're in the business of developing equity crowd funding on a platform or on some, some level of business, depending on what you're trying to do, um, the access to that information is, is critical to, to your business. And I think that because of the fact that it is technology-based, this allows, I think, for um, the, uh, a more robust society, and this is globally, not just in the United States or in Australia or any other country, but globally it allows for a much more robust structure to be formed. And um, and it also allows for that to take place in a, in a in a much more rapid fashion than it might otherwise take place. You know, we don't have carrier pigeons taking the information back and forth anymore. It's it's now happening in real time, and um, that information flow is is um, is very rapid between all of these businesses. And I know we we're seeing it in the this, the investments that we make. Um, and the entrepreneurs that we talk to who are watching this and they're getting that information in real time, um, allowing them to you know, strategically pivot their own businesses if and when they need to. So um, there's, there's a lot of leverage available in that. Um, which brings me to a question. I mean, what, uh, what are the countries uh, that you see that are leveraging the changes in the US laws um, to drive access to capital? I mean, you, just, you talked earlier about Israel. Um, and um, give us some insights into that. Let me just drill down into the Israel example because I think it's a great one. So Israel, a country of 7 million people, is known globally as a startup nation because they have more startups per population than any other place in the world. Still suffers from the same problems that any other startup faces, which is access to capital. Um, just because you have an idea doesn't mean it's going to get funded. There's a crowdfunding platform there called Our Crowd that realized that the diaspora funnel, the diaspora investor group from the United States into Israel startups might be a good target for some of these startups that aren't receiving the traditional financing. And so they have been hosting, um, doing vetting and co-investing on deals that they think are worthwhile for the crowd to get behind. And one of the companies is a company called Rewalk, and they develop an uh, exoskeleton. So if you're paralyzed, this is now a solution that will allow you to walk again. It's, it's truly fascinating and disruptive when you've got almost 6 million people just between the U.S. and Europe that are wheelchair-bound every day. And the cost of having those people in wheelchair, when you think about the dietary, the restrictions, the lack of muscular activity, and the healthcare costs that come along with that, if you can get them up on their, their feet and get them exercising, you cut down dramatically on that cost to a, a country's healthcare system. So this company that um, uh, traditionally wouldn't probably qualify for financing because it doesn't sort of hit the sweet spot of a traditional VC because is the market big enough for them, went out and did a crowdfund offering in June of this year, raised $1.3 million from the crowd at an $18.3 million valuation. That validation from the crowd that 
people were willing to put their money where their mouth is and invest in this company and do marketing because it's not these people are now have a vested interest in the success and it's not like buying a share of Apple where you say I own an iPhone and people are like yay let's you know the stock is going to go up these people are active investors in promoting a business and get people to actively look at that business and use the product or service they decided to file for an IPO they had their IPO on September 12th at $12 a share, which was a $105 million valuation. Today, those shares are trading at $32 a share, which is a $375 million valuation. Our crowd requires that investors put a $10,000 minimum investment into each investment. So that $10,000 today would equate to $200,000 in liquidity for the crowd. The true potential for, I think, crowdfunding is when you analyze, like we do at Crowdfund uh, Capital Advisors, and we spend a lot of our time researching businesses in the private capital markets, the real potential for investors comes way before an IPO. It comes where these companies are in their hyper-growth phase and are not flattening out. And so how do we identify these companies? How do we bring them to investors to see which is the right opportunity for them? How do we give them the information so that they can make an informed decision? And then how do we help these companies that probably wouldn't otherwise get the funding potentially go IPO now? Yeah, I mean, it's... Um Sorry, you go ahead, Jason. I, I was just going to say it's it is um, the UK is uh, probably has the most sophisticated uh, crowdfunding ecosystem in the world today, uh, both on the debt and the equity side. And it's been fascinating to watch that market develop and to to provide opportunities for you know again both Main Street businesses more on the debt side of things, uh, being able to, businesses with with profits and cash flow and the desire for working capital or expansion capital. And the ability for people to, you know, earn healthy returns on money that may be you know, earning at one half of one percent in a, you know, in a CD, uh, or on the equity side of things in, in startups and, and, and small businesses. I think it's it, one of the, a couple of quick data points for, for the audience. Uh, while we've all seen, or many of us have seen, the, the, the wildly successful campaigns where there have been tens of thousands of people who've given to Kickstarter campaigns or rewards-based campaigns when they've pre, when they've purchased. Uh, pre-purchased an item, pre-purchased some inventory in a, in a product. Typically in equity crowdfunding or debt crowdfunding uh, there are usually less than 200 investors. Many times more like between 50 and 100. Uh, and so it is, uh, it, it is not a, you know, I have to manage 50,000 investors on my cap table. It tends to be a much more manageable number uh, that one would expect to see in a, uh, in a in a startup company where you've got lots of, of you know, Small investors making five or ten or twenty thousand dollar investments. One of the really interesting things is, as probably a lot of your audience knows, you know, less than ten percent of the people in the U.S., for example, who qualify as accredited investors, actually make private company investments because they've never known about these deals' existence. Uh, now, instead of having to write a twenty-five thousand dollar check or a hundred thousand dollar check to get into one of these deals on these platforms. You know, ten thousand dollars is very a much more common number of being a minimum, or sometimes even five thousand dollars is being a minimum. So it allows more people the chance to have better diversification and experiment with um, making these investments in the private capital markets. I think that's um, you know the statement that you made last um, in the last podcast about democratizing financial markets is is really what you're just discussing there now because 
while you do have um, you know many accredited investors who are not making these investments, really what this has done is it's allowed them to start stepping in, dipping their toe into an environment that they're unfamiliar with, and doing so on a on a level of risk that they're acceptable with because. Let's face it, in the private equity markets, um, if you want to get involved, typically you're either going to get into a private equity fund, and the minimums on those can run over a million dollars um, per investor, or you're going to you know, um, have to go out and source your own private deal flow. And again, the minimum investment on many of these transactions is probably prohibitive, even if, um, if you are an accredited investor, certainly with respect to the level of um, Skills that you might have and be comfortable with, so you know this. This is it's really just created a whole new environment for um, both for companies to access um, capital and for investors to access the real potential in some of these companies. So it's, it's certainly a, a very fertile sort of playing field. You I'm curious? Um, about, just I, so, I want to. You brought up a really good point, and I want to sort of hone in on that, which is. The process of identifying companies that people can invest in before was very limited. It was either a company going out there trying to find investors or investors going out there going, where are companies that are looking for capital? And uh, we didn't really have a mechanism to allow us to find investors or find companies. And that's what this whole crowd finance arena has solved, which is now we've got technology and it allows you to go out there and say, listen, you know what, I want to look for a high-tech company that is working on solutions in you know, an area of uh, wearables. And uh, who's working on that? Maybe are they in the southeast part of the United States? Are they connected with a university? So you can put all these um, delineators on your investment now and you get a list of companies that meet your criteria. That then allows you to then filter, uh, match your investment that you're looking for with the companies that exist out there. So you've streamlined the process. These platforms all have a standardized look and feel to them in the sense that they've got the disclosures that you're looking for. And all this information is fed to you in a way that you can make a decision much uh, more rapidly than someone posting something and putting it in the mail and sending it to New Zealand, which you know three months later you hope to have a phone call about so that you can decide what questions you have on that information in the document that I sent you. Oh, I left something out. Hold on, I'll send that to you as well. Yeah, no, it's, um, it comes around to that, that free flow of information that we talked about before. Um, it's it's critical to. Uh, investors' due diligence, and it's critical to um, to businesses on their own res in their own respects with respect to their um, uh, reviewing of their own business plans and um, uh, ensuring that they are doing the right thing, um, that their, their market intelligence is correct, and so on and so forth. Um, so, I mean, one of the things, and with respect to crowd finance, uh, is that. This is an environment also for a business to fail fast, and, and I don't think that's really been uh, mentioned before. Is that if you if you go out there and you raise um, a small amount of capital, and um, you you don't you don't manage to validate your market, um, then it's very tough for that company to go back to market again um, with exactly the same um, strategy because. It hasn't worked, and so that's that's a very good thing for that's a very good thing for the company. It's a very good thing for investors. And one of the things that we've seen um, certainly over the years that I've been involved in the space, and Mark has, 
is that you know sometimes uh, in the sort of old regime of things you can have a company which is not succeeding it's not validating its market but it's um, it's working along somewhat more institutional lines and they manage to keep raising capital um, and to fight another day and and really it just prolongs um, a death which often comes um, and I think in, in, in the environment that is being opened up now is is one that um, allows for companies to very rapidly validate their market potential and um, to change and pivot if, if required. So you know, these are all very good things, both for investors as well as for businesses themselves. And it all comes down to that ability for information flow to be rapid and, um, and transparent as well. So I'm just curious, what are some of the examples of, um, of how the regulation is being structured at the moment? I think you need to look at it at a case-by-case -case basis and different countries are looking at what that funding void is that exists in their marketplace and how to address it. So for instance, uh, you know, the critical thing is, is what is the amount of capital that startups and small businesses need and how do we um, figure out what is the limit that issuers can go out and seek from investors without us infringing on the traditional capital market players um, and allow the, the crowd to come in and do what they need to do. But at the same time, how do we come up with caps and limits on what investors can put in there so that if they don't understand portfolio diversification, we can come up with limits and bumpers in a way to keep them from going over and investing more than they can afford to lose. I think we're also we, we've developed a balanced stakeholder framework at, at Crowdfund Capital Advisors that we work with regulators and governments on. It really kind of balances the needs of the four different actors in, in, in when you're designing these regulations. First, how do you protect investors? Obviously, that's a primary concern for regulators and making sure that, that investors are protected, that they have access to information they need to make good decisions that are right for them. Second, how do you balance that against the need for companies to, to raise capital in a way that's efficient enough that, it's, that the process is not so onerous uh, that it becomes unworkable for them to use. Third, uh, how do you provide transparency for the regulator? We really believe, uh, and this, this comes from uh, our, our attorney, uh, Douglas Elinoff, who's probably the top uh, Jobs Act attorney in the United States, who says that we can do it better with, with crowdfunding than has been available in the private capital markets to date because for the first time all this information exists on websites in databases that can you know that, that the regulator can have access to and it's in the industry's best interest to provide that access and so to do it in, a, in an efficient way and then fourth is just making sure that the crowdfunding platforms and the crowdfunding ecosystem itself has enough oxygen to survive and to grow and thrive in fact because these are for-profit businesses that need to be able to to grow and succeed Do you, Jen, see um, many changes with respect to how um, the due diligence process will take place and investor relations and things like that for crowdfunding? Um, I mean, I see that as being a lot of the infrastructure that will be built and, and really, quite frankly, where a lot of the opportunities exist if you're looking to invest not in the businesses that are being crowdfinanced but in crowdfinancing infrastructure, so to speak. I think you have hit on a tremendous opportunity in an investment for the ecosystem itself. The areas that everyone's focused on is the portals 
and the, the companies that are going to be raising money on it. But in reality, once you raise money as a company, you've got a whole set of compliance criteria that you have to meet not only with regulators, but with tax authorities and with your investors. And so while you might have tools, and actually if you look at public companies, they have entire departments that are their investor relations departments. Correct. How do we come up with tools and technologies that scale down to the crowd finance business that allow them to enter all their investors into a software system that keeps track of their voting record, that keeps track of documentation that has been sent to them? Um, these are technologies that are being built right now to support this ecosystem in this industry. The beauty about it is, is the public companies that have built their own solutions have a solution just for them. The crowd, again, is building a solution that will be used by the broader capital markets um, going forward because these are companies that are going to get used to crowd uh, crowdfunding investor relations with the crowd at a very early stage and it's going to teach them how to communicate with these investors as they grow. I think you know building on that it's not only is it this technology this huge opportunity for for new technology to be created for crowdfunding to make this an effective ecosystem and an effective marketplace but there're going to be a number of these technologies that are going to translate into different parts of the private capital markets. And I think investor relations is a great example of that. So, for example, I'm, let's say I'm, a, I'm an investor. I'm making investments on a, on a couple of crowdfunding platforms where I'm getting real-time updates, where I'm a, able to, you know, effectively understand what's happening with my company at any time. I'm able to get updates through social media or through private messages or, or through the web. And I feel like I'm, a, I'm as an angel investor, I'm a part of what's happening, which is what angel investors like to like to like to feel that they understand what's happening in the business they're investing in, and they can be a part of it. Um, contrast that with you know the fact maybe with a, a venture capital firm that I, that I may have invested some money in, where I'm getting you know uh, updates late or I'm getting uh, not at all, and I, it's a very opaque. I'm not able to see what what's happening with the companies. And so there's an opportunity for those sorts of investor relations tools that what he was talking about to be modified and begin to be used by you know venture capital groups, by angel groups, by other organizations to give better transparency to the the investments that are being made. I think this is an entire new asset class, James. Um, and I know you agree with me on this, but you know what we've got here is the formation of an entire new asset class, which. You know, if if I if you take it to sort of logical conclusion over the next uh, five, ten, fifteen, twenty years, um, this is something that you know your average broker is going to be talking to you about. You're going to say, "Oh, yeah, you know, I can get you CDs, I can get you some equity, I can get you a mutual fund, and you know, here's a little portion for private equity." And um, you know, that brings in a whole lot of other opportunities with respect to you know potential liquidity um, that that. Um, ultimately should arise out of this um, given the growth that we expect over these um, uh, the this new asset class and then the services that would provide for that so clearing houses for private equity for as a, as a perfect example um, is one that you know we've uh, we've been very interested in and um, I think that that's 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 really where a lot of this starts gaining um, that starts gaining attraction with respect to the existing uh, institutional funds that and, and money managers that are out there, where they'll actually start moving into this space 
they're going to have to change their business models, but they're going to start moving into the space to allow for a lot of the services that don't currently exist. And you know, I see this as being a massive, a massive benefit to the private equity markets, which is a market that you know we personally worked in for many years. And you know, a lot of the transparency doesn't exist the way that you would want to. There's, there's, you know, those services that we discuss are, uh, you know, uh, are, are somewhat, are, are certainly lacking. And just the, given the volumes of capital that are coming into these markets, will necessitate and will drive a lot of the uh, services for this. So this is. I see this as being a huge opportunity and also a good thing for um, existing private equity and angel investors. Um, so it's one of the things that I want to quickly move on to because time's ticking here is um, you know what what this means for developing economies. As you gents know, you know this is an environment that Mark and I um, play close attention to. Um, you know we've been living in Southeast Asia for some time and um, it's it's a fast-growing, rapid um, Markets with huge potential um, demographically, they're um, set very well for growth over the next 15, 20 years. And I know that Jason, you've just come back from um, being a keynote speaker in Malaysia, and I'm curious to know what uh, what you guys think this means for developing markets. Well, uh, it was a it was a fascinating trip uh, back to Asia uh, again. I mean, we were there. Uh, a year ago in Malaysia for the Global Entrepreneurship Summit where Woody spoke uh, at the event and a lot of the questions at that point were what is crowdfunding? Now, 12 months later, uh, a lot of it really are in, with the regulators and the businesses and the investors that we're talking to, it's like how do I use crowdfunding to generate you know, jobs? To get more entrepreneurs up and running, and to to you know stabilize our economy, and so I think that uh, we've seen a lot of a lot of movement. Just three quick uh, examples. One is Singapore just uh, approved their first peer-to-peer -peer lending site, MulaSense, um, and we know their CEO uh, who came to our crowdfunding uh, symposium actually at UC Berkeley a few weeks ago. And so that's getting up and running on the debt side. They're working on equity regulation in Singapore, but they haven't discussed it really publicly yet. Uh, also met with uh, the Secretary General of the Thai Stock Exchange and some of the top folks uh, at the Securities Exchange Commission in Thailand. And they seem very serious about moving forward with crowdfunding regulation. And I think that my, my guess uh, would be that you know maybe within 12 months there is equity and debt crowdfunding in uh, in Thailand, I think the but the nearest term opportunity is in Malaysia. Uh, it is uh, they the event that I spoke at was really with the Securities Commission. They're uh, launching publicly the the, the regulation that uh, that they want to put forward to the Parliament for vote. They had a public uh, comment period already, and they've issued their response to the public comment period. And now now it goes on to the Parliament for a vote. And the hope is that uh, by March of next year, so just six months from now. That there will be equity crowdfunding in Malaysia, and so I think that's very significant for a number of reasons. First, because it'll be the first country in Asia and all of Asia to have equity crowdfunding. Two, it's also the first Muslim-majority nation with crowdfunding, which should uh, we've spent a fair amount of time in the Middle East as well, uh, and I think that there are a number of other players in that market that will now because uh, because Malaysia is looked at as a leader in Islamic finance, 
there'll be a number of players in, in the MENA region that will now begin to look at this, I think, in a, in a more serious way and start thinking about how they can incorporate these, uh, these opportunities themselves. I think that's a really important point that Jason just left off on. The real opportunity, and I'm throwing this out there because I really believe it, and I know Jason does too because of the traveling that we've done, particularly in the MENA region, is when we're seeing what's happening on the news with these people that are extremists, quote-unquote, we're not focusing on the problem, and the problem to us seems pretty logical, which is these people need jobs. And if they've got jobs, they've got um, money coming in, and that money is economic and political stability. It leads to political stability because people are just focused on working. If we can change our tactics and start focusing on how do we create jobs in these economies where people don't have anything to do other than get mad about their circumstances uh, in which they're living. I think we can really change the way the world is functioning and have a direct impact on global stability because again people will be working and not on the streets rebelling. I mean another example from Southeast Asia a few months ago we were uh, in Singapore speaking at a different event and on crowdfunding and uh, had a chance to meet with the Minister of State of Cambodia and talked about these issues and obviously you know Cambodia kind of a frontier economy uh, but really, um, again, it goes back to one of the points that we made, the central point, really, of our World Bank research that we issued a year ago, really was looking at how it make crowdfunding effective in developing economies, and we really believe this can uh, provide a leapfrog opportunity, much like the often cited example of when cell phones came to China and people stopped buying landlines. Uh, we think that this is an opportunity for the financial markets in, in developing and frontier economies to leapfrog because they're not held down by 80 years of regulation. They can, be cre they can create financial regulation today with the tools and, and, and resources that are available today and that we think crowdfunding is ideally suited to be part of that solution. It's interesting that you just talk about that. I had a, an experience um, many years back now um, up in the northern parts of India up near the Kashmir border with a rice farmer and um, I was traveling through the region and I was um, discussing with one of the farmers in the market and this gentleman was selling his rice um, to dealers who would drive up from New Delhi and um, he was mentioning to me what prices he used to pay literally six months prior and, um, and he had in his hand just a, a, a cell phone and it wasn't a smartphone at those times, it was just a general cell phone but he would get a text message from a friend of his who was in New Delhi who would send him the price of rice in New Delhi. And this gave him um, a massive, massive advantage. He had previously been selling his rice for literally 90% below spot to dealers who would then take the, the, the massive margins, drive it, drive it back to Delhi and sell it in the spot market. And he simply did that because he just didn't know what the price of the commodity was. And so now this simple technology of a cell phone, he could access the price immediately and find out what the price was and then negotiate according to that. Um, and, and, you know, when I think about what that technology did and then when I think about what crowdfinance does, you would have a gentleman like that who, if he wanted to go out and uh, you know, purchase a tractor or, or do whatever in, in, some, in his business, and um, sell debt or equity in order to do that, 
Um, these are things that he had never, never had the opportunity to do, and we uh, potentially now have access to capital that um, you know high-flying financiers in uh, in the cities of Netanyahu or elsewhere in the world um, have access to. And so uh, I see that as being a tremendous benefit to, um, to capital formation. And as you quite correctly pointed out, Woody, I mean, people, uh, when people are fed and happy, um, they, they, you know, for the most part, and we've traveled the world extensively, people don't want to be fighting. You know, they want to, they want the same things that all of us want. They want to feed their family. They want to have a, um, a good existence. And, um, if they have that, then the propensity to get out in the streets with pitchforks and um, lash out at um, anyone and everyone else that might have different views to them is drastically reduced. Um, and this goes a long way into uh, solving those issues, really. I mean, one of the things that struck me a couple weeks ago when I was, I guess, well, maybe a week and a half ago when the G20 meeting was happening and, and the finance ministers were talking about all of these kind of top-level uh, changes that they are, want to make to try to stimulate the global economy. And, you know, many times the people we meet with in countries are uh, people within ministries of finance or regulators or the entrepreneurial community who are focused on how do we get more entrepreneurs, how do we get more job creation. And there's, you know, there's nothing that, that, that benefits that more than, than crowdfunding because it allows more people to get access to what they need most to start a business that they're lacking the most. I mean, you guys have traveled over the world. You know that there are, you know, every country has, has you know, accelerators and incubators and university programs and entrepreneurship training programs, and all these things. And then governments set up funds, and the funds are supposed to develop, you know, distribute, you know, cash to entrepreneurs to help them grow their businesses. The problem is you have someone in the government whose job it is to hand out the money. And if they, if they hand out the money to the wrong people, then they get fired. If they don't ever hand out the money and just keep doing due diligence, then they don't get fired. And so you know, this opportunity to uh, you know, allow more people to do diligence on the people that are in their community, that are their customers, make this investment decisions, and deploy that capital in a much more efficient way is, is incredible. Yeah, no, that's, that's a fantastic point. I mean, look, at the end of the day, what you just discussed there with respect to these um, government institutions that are um, tasked with divvying out capital towards you know, entrepreneurs and startup um, enterprises is essentially uh, centralized planning. You know? And look, if centralized planning worked, we'd all be speaking Russian. So <laughs> it, it's, it's a no-go. No uh, I'm curious, guys. Just we need to wrap this up pretty quickly. But um, tell me about Latin America um, and what you guys are seeing there. Um. Well, we wrote uh, our World Bank report has led to a lot of interest globally. Um, the Inter-American Development Bank has been very interested to see the Pan American uh, solution that we can come up with for crowdfunding in Latin America, and so we are beginning work with um, the IADB in Chile, Peru, Colombia, um, and uh, we're the goal, in Mexico with the goal of coming up with um, an understanding of what crowdfunding is, uh, a, a beginning dialogue on what the right regulatory framework would look like for the region. Um, and this is critically important too because one of the things that we need to have a, a really broad discussion with is, is how are we going to deal with monetary flows? You know, if we've got anti-terrorist laws, uh, anti-money laundering, 
how do we enable small capital formation to work in conjunction with those uh, AML and anti-terrorist um, laws that are in existence. And so it's exciting to see that um, development banks um, jumping on board with this. Uh, it's exciting to see the opportunity for regions like Latin America that have suffered um, and have great, you know, Mexico, here's just a, a random data point. They graduate more um, technologists, um, engineers, than we do in the United States a year, 60,000. Um, and they are underemployed. Boy, but those engineers can go out and create many businesses that can be used, but they don't have the capital formation, the infrastructure in place in Mexico that would enable this. And so now with crowdfunding, we can come up with a solution that allows those engineers create their own businesses and allow new technologies to be developed. What's, what's also great about this is because the, the groups that we work with, like the Inter-American Development Bank, like government institutions, like our work with the U.S. State Department uh, in a number of countries, it allows us to, to deeply embed ourselves in this ecosystem of crowdfunding that exists in countries around the world, get to know the leaders of these crowdfunding platforms, get to know the leaders of the industry, get to know the leaders of the entrepreneurial communities in these countries, that gives us a really unique viewpoint on these as these ecosystems develop and as investment opportunities uh, appear. Well, thanks, guys. That was uh, again fascinating, and uh, I want to kind of wrap it up there and, and keep this uh, keep some of these topics for next time. So uh, when we are rejoined by our listeners and podcast three, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the opportunities you're seeing. Um, you guys get access to deal flow into literally dozens of countries, like we just talked about. So, kind of curious to see what you're, um, you know, what you're seeing out there, and uh, give guys and uh, gals who are listening to this podcast an idea what um, what kind of opportunities exist in, in crowdfunding globally. And so, we'll talk a little bit about some of the platforms that exist, the ecosystem a little bit more, and then also a little bit about how you leverage your network to gain access to some of these deals. So I want to thank you guys again, and we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by Serif, a private global investment syndicate. To learn more about Serif, visit www.serif.bc. That's www.serif.bc.